What kind of political structure flows directly from covenant theology? That is the discussion that we are approaching right now. We want to ask ourselves the question, if we believed in the covenant of grace, what would it do to the government? What would happen to the relation between Christ and the church? Since unity is the master principle for the covenant of grace. It is the concept by which scripture is interpreted within covenant theology. If that is the principle, that is unity, then we would expect to see a similar kind of authoritarian structure in civil affairs and in the church that we saw in the law of Moses. So the question is, what revelations does the law of Moses give to us regarding political structure? And that is what we will discuss this evening under several headings. The first is I'd like to direct your attention to Deuteronomy 17. You can open your Bible or you can see it right there in the notes. Deuteronomy 17. And this book is a fascinating restatement of the law. The book of Deuteronomy happens approximately 40 years after the book of Exodus. So they've climbed up Mount Sinai uh, and Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses comes down from the Ten Commandments. He comes down from Mount Sinai. He sees the people given over to uh, immorality and to syncretism. They were calling themselves worshiping Jehovah using the golden calf. He throws down the tablets of stone, punishes the people. He goes back up the mountain. The tablets of stone uh, are given a second time and he comes back down the mountain. For 40 years, they wander in the wilderness after the spies return with a doubtful report of the land of Canaan. And here we have the book of Deuteronomy given to us about 40 years later. Deuteronomy is a series of sermons. It might be something like a Bible conference held on the outskirts of the land of Canaan before the Israelites enter Canaan. Moses preaches to them basically the contents of the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 17 in Deuteronomy, we have a really fascinating section. It's in verses 14 to 20. I've listed them in the notes there, but it's how to choose a king. How could the Jews choose a king? Could we use this passage for choosing a president today? Well, let's look at the passage. Chapter 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it, you live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Interestingly, that line was fulfilled in Solomon when he multiplied wives and it happened exactly as was prophesied. His heart was turned away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. We don't want politicians trying to get rich off of the taxpayer 
off of the back of taxpayers. Verse 18, 19, and 20 are the sections, the verses that I'd like to direct our attention to. In verse 18, now it will come to pass, now it will come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself, what? A copy of this law on a scroll. What law? The laws of Moses. Perhaps only the laws revealed on Mount Sinai and then repeated by Moses here in Deuteronomy. Or perhaps the 88 chapters of history in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as well as the laws. But as to write a copy of this law, circle that word this, in the presence of the Levitical priests, verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all, circle the word all, the words of this law, circle the word this, and these statutes, circle the word these, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Notice three observations from these three verses, 18, 19, and 20, Deuteronomy chapter 17. First of all, the Jews' king must write his own copy of the law of Moses. He must be devoted to this law. He secondly must be reading that law constantly and he must not neglect any of the words or laws or rules or customs. So he's got to write his own copy, start his own library, and it's got to start with God's revelation. He's got to keep it and read it constantly. And he is going to have to obey all of the laws. But I had you circle words. Which laws? Which revelation? Specifically those 613 laws that the rabbis counted. Specifically those chapters of laws in Exodus, Leviticus, a few in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy. He is a man made to govern, not by the Sermon on the Mount, not by the epistles of Paul, He's not going to govern on John the Baptist. He's not going to govern with baptism. He's not going to govern with church discipline. He's going to govern with these laws that were given to him by Moses. What kind of laws would he be implementing? Well, look in the same chapter. And now you need to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17 because I didn't include the entire chapter. What kind of laws? Well, look right there in the context of Deuteronomy 17. There are actually two scenarios given in this chapter. This is a a trademark of Moses' teaching. You'll remember that in Exodus and Leviticus, Moses was writing down the laws of God. But in Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching and teaching. When Moses teaches, commonly in Deuteronomy chapter 13, in Deuteronomy chapter 18... In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and in other chapters throughout this book, he gives examples or case scenarios. Here are some case scenarios. 
In Deuteronomy 17, we have two scenarios. At the very end of Deuteronomy 17, he says, this is how to choose a king. We'll look in chapter 17, verses 2 through 5. What is the case scenario that would be a kind of law that the king would be reading every day? The king would be following when he makes his laws. Here it is, verse 2. If there be found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, man or woman, that has wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it is told to you, and you have heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it's true. And the thing is certain that such an abomination is wrought in Israel. What must you do in verse 5? Then you shall bring forth that man or that woman which has committed the wicked thing unto your gates, even that man or that woman, and you will stone them with stones until they die. What law must the king implement? In the context, in the same chapter in which we read, they must choose a king who's going to use the law of Moses. It's very clear. Use this law, king. If someone goes after any other god, Use this law. The law is, if he's a Muslim or a Buddhist, if he's a Hindu, you are to take him outside of the community to the place of execution and he must be stoned. Stoning was used because it was something the entire community had to do. So it proved the loyalty of all of the men. So all of the Israelites had to be involved in stoning. You see, in modern executions, he might be executed by hanging, in which case one man does the execution. Or in the United States of America, execution might be done by the electric chair, where a man would be killed by electricity, in which case there is one man who does that execution. But in these days, death was by stoning, So that all of the community would get together and they would say, we agree with this verdict. It would force every man at every capital crime to ask himself, do I agree or not? Am I willing to put my hand to work putting this one to death? How would you feel if you were called on to perform that kind of service? This was required of them. Death was required because there was no freedom of religion under the law. And that's the point here. You can underline it in your notes or mark it in your Bibles. That's a vital point here. You cannot defend freedom of religion from the Old Testament law. But that's only the first scenario in chapter 17. There's a second scenario. Look down to chapter 17, verse 8. 
If there arises a matter too hard for you in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, between matters of controversy within your gates, then you will arise and get you up to the place which the Lord your God will choose. And you will come to the priests, the Levites, unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire. And they will show you the sentence of judgment. Verse 10. And you will do according to the sentence which they of that place, which the Lord chooses, will show you. And you will observe to do according to all that they tell you. Verse 11. Notice this. According to the sentence of what? Of the law which they will teach you. And according to the judgment which they will tell you, you will do. You will not decline from the sentence which they will show you to the right hand or to the left. Verse 12. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken to the priest that stands to minister there before the Lord your God or unto the judge, even that man will die and you will put away the evil from Israel. And all the people will hear and fear and will no more sin presumptuously. That is the second scenario in chapter 17. What do you have? You have two men. They're fighting about some matter. So the one man wants to open a lawsuit. He says, this isn't right. And they can't solve it. So they go to the governmental authorities. And they're described in verse number 9. You can circle this in your Bibles. Priests. Or judges. In verse number nine, you have priests. Those are religious leaders. In verse number nine, you have judges. What form of authority are they? Civil, government, legal. So you've got religious leaders and you've got government leaders. If you've got a problem with your friend, your brother, your coworker, you take them in front of the religious leader and in front of the civil leader. Those two are going to work together. the priests and the judges will tell them what God's law requires in verse 11 they will teach you they will inform you they will look at the Bible they will look at the Torah they will look at the instruction that God has given and they will say this is how we apply Exodus 22 or Exodus 23 or Leviticus 19 this is how we apply Leviticus 19 in this specific case You have wise, good men, and they're going to apply the law of God to two men who have a controversy. And then what happens? Let's say one of the men listens to this and he says, I don't like what these men are saying. I don't like how they're doing that. Who made them authorities over me? I don't have to listen to them. I can read Exodus for myself. If they talk that way, and he does not follow the law of Moses as it is applied to his case, in verse 12, he has committed a capital offense. A citizen's civil disobedience to a man who has correctly interpreted the law of Moses and applied it to his case requires the death penalty for the citizen who disobeyed that authority. These are the laws that the new king must enforce. Now I'm asking you right now, how would a faithful king of Israel act? The context shows very clearly, he would take the law of Moses. He would put to death 
a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. He would put to death a Catholic. That's verses two through five. That's the first scenario. In the second case, he would put to death a man who is involved in civil disobedience. And this chapter is similar to other places in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 13, you know this, we've referenced this chapter before in this class. In Deuteronomy 13, there are three scenarios. If a friend comes to you and says, let's go worship another God, put him to death. If your wife or your husband or the person you love says, let's go consider another religion, you have to put them to death. Your hand has to be with them or your hand has to be with the community. In putting your loved one to death, you must not pity them, Deuteronomy 13 says. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, the death penalty for false prophecy. Can you imagine what would happen in South Africa if that law were applied? Many churches would lose their pastors. And go further, in Deuteronomy 21, the next scenario, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21 It says, if a man and a woman have a son who is stubborn, rebellious, a glutton, and a drunkard. He's a good-for-nothing bum. He won't work. He won't listen to them. All he wants to do is waste time and waste money. You're to talk to them about it. Take him before the community. You, the parents, have a responsibility to take him before the community and to join them in killing your own son. These laws must be followed by who? What's the whole point of this heading? Specifically the king. Deuteronomy 17. Verse what word says king? Verse 15. Verse 14. This king must follow those laws. Let's go further. What about the death penalty? Turn over to page 16 in your notes. What about the death penalties of the Torah? So we've seen, first of all, how must kings be chosen? They must be rigidly obedient to all of the laws that they are reading day by day in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Second heading, notice this, the death penalties of the Old Testament. I've listed there a chart. I hope that chart will be useful for you. Those are not all, but those are many, the majority of the death penalties of the Old Testament law. Exodus 21, verse 12, murder. That's listed a number of times. Exodus 21, 15, assaulting parents. Exodus 21, 16, kidnapping, which would be slavery. Exodus 21, 17, cursing parents. Exodus 21, 29, negligence resulting in death. Exodus 22.18, sorcery and witchcraft. Exodus 22.19, bestiality. Exodus 22.20, worshiping any God other than Jehovah. Exodus 30, defiling the tabernacle. Exodus 31, working on Saturday. Leviticus 7, dishonoring the sacrifices. And there's three different ways it's listed in Leviticus 7. And on and on it goes. Child sacrifice, adultery, incest, homosexuality, prostitution for a priest's daughter, uncleanness in worship, 
profaning the day of atonement, blasphemy, touching or looking at holy things, neglecting to keep the Passover, any willful sin by a citizen or by a foreigner. If you have a visitor who's staying with you in your house and he knowingly chooses to break the law of God, it's the death penalty for him. Foreigners trying to become priests. If a, an Ammonite stayed with the Jews for a long time and he seemed like a good man and he was faithful and honest and hardworking and they needed someone to be a priest and he thought, well, I'll do it. It's the death penalty. Promoting false teaching or false religion, civil disobedience, false prophecy, rebellious children, and one of the last ones recorded in the Decalogue is rape. I'm sorry, not the Decalogue, in the Pentateuch. The law of Moses offers roughly 30 death penalties. And these represent many passages and scores of verses in your Bible. I did not list all the passages, but I listed almost all of the offenses. If you say, why didn't I list all the offenses? Some of them weren't always very clear. Some of them, it says, if they do something inappropriate with the sacrifice, and it's not clear what exactly it is in Leviticus. Sometimes it's not clear if it's a second, a second sin other than incest. Or if it's polygamy. In the book of Leviticus chapter 20. But you get the point. Here's the point. The penal sanctions are often repeated and they are vitally connected to the entire system. Did you see where the references to the death penalty start? What's the first reference? Exodus. Exodus what chapter? Exodus 21. Where is the Ten Commandments in Exodus? Exodus 20. The very next chapter, as soon as he's done giving the Ten Commandments, he starts giving death penalties for breaking the Ten Commandments. All right, if you murder people, what happens? Answer, this is what happens. If you disrespect your parents, what happens? Well, this is what happens. If you steal a person, this is what happens. If you curse your parents... If you do not honor the first and the second and the third commandments. You see, in Exodus 21, he's going on explaining what is going to happen if you disregard the Decalogue. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because if you hold to the Ten Commandments, you have to hold to the penalties for the Ten Commandments. A law without consequences is good advice. Are these the 10 pieces of advice that if you think, if it sounds good to you, can do? Or are these the 10 commands? Do not kill or else you will be killed. Do not dishonor your parents or you will be killed. Do not worship any other gods or else you will be killed. These are all connected to the system. They rise and fall together. It is a disjointed, inconsistent hermeneutic that says, I will take Exodus 20, 
but I will not take Exodus 21. Now, traditionally, covenant theology divides the law of Moses into three categories. Moral, moral, civil, and ceremonial. These three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial, are intended to work this way. I think we can all understand what the ceremonies are, can't we? Ceremonies would be take a cow and offer that bull or cow for your sin. Do we offer cows and bulls today? Do we offer sheeps? Sheep. No. Are you awake? <laughs> no, we don't offer that. That's a ceremony. And those ceremonies are done away with in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 or 10. So those ceremonies are done away. Moral laws do not kill. Do we kill today? No. no. So we have no killing, but we don't have to offer sacrifices because Christ is our sacrifice. But what do you do with some of these laws? What do you do with laws that say, if you build a house, then on the second story, put up a fence on the second story of the house so that no one will fall over and die. Well, some theologians, actually many, for hundreds of years, have said that would be a civil law. So they say a civil law applied only to what nation? Israel. Israel. So if you have a law that says you must be circumcised, that's a civil law. If you have a law that says put up a fence, that's a civil law. If you have a law that says do not lie, that is a? If you have a law that says offer a sacrifice, that is a? That's pretty easy, right? We understand that. We have laws for the nation of Israel. Laws before Jesus. And laws for all people at all times. Does that make sense? In fact, let me just put these categories right underneath here. Moral. All men. All time. Does that make sense? Civil. Israel only. Ceremonial. Finished in Christ. Now that's a very helpful category, categorization, right? How many do we have? We have three groups. Members of the Trinity. There are three. Moral, civil, ceremonial. Moral is for all men, all time. Ceremonial is finished in Christ. Civil is only for Israel. Well, that will make it very easy. Except that it doesn't work. Pick almost any of these laws. Let me ask you. Murder. Is murder for Israel... We say it's, it's civil only. It was for Israel only. What, was it wrong for people to murder in Israel? Yes. Yes, sir. yes. Is it wrong for us to murder? Yes. 
So is that a law for Israel? Yes, but it's a law for all men. Okay, well, that, that, that's not very clear. What about this one? Sorcery. Is that a moral law? Yes. Is it wrong today? Is it morally wrong today to worship Satan? Yes. To use witchcraft? Yes. That is morally wrong. Wait a minute, but the death penalty was applied. We kill witches in the Old Testament. I put the reference right there. So that law right there, the law of killing a witch, is that for all men of all time or is that for Israel? Well, the penalty is only for Israel, but the law is for all time. On what authority do you say it's absolutely wrong for all men to commit sorcery, but, but the penalty, that, that's different. That's for Israel only. Wait a minute. Isn't sorcery a ceremonial Sin? Doesn't it have a ceremonial function? If you have a society full of Satan worshipers, won't it send a ceremonial message, a message that says, this is the kind of religion we promote? What are other examples? What about uh, working on Saturday? Was it, was working on Saturday wrong for Israel only? Was it wrong for Israel? Yes. Yes. On what authority do we say it's not there anymore? Is there a New Testament command? Where is the New Testament command that stops it? Perhaps Hebrews 4, but is it? It's not explicit, is it? On what authority are you going to say, well, in Israel they couldn't work on Saturdays? And was that a ceremony? Many Baptists have said that the specific element of not working on Saturday was a ceremony. Is that a moral law? Many covenant theologians will say, oh yes, we, could, we keep the Sabbath. In fact, they will call themselves Sabbatarians. That is a common theological position. Godly men who are alive today, writing books today, will call themselves Sabbatarians. Meaning they keep the they're saying the Sabbath is a moral law. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number. So it's in here. Oh, but the, the penalty, that's not moral. The penalty is civil. On what authority? Where are you going to say the law is for all time, but the commandment is not? And why would you not say it's a ceremony fulfilled in Christ when you have Hebrews 4? In fact, I would submit to you that it's difficult to categorize almost any of these laws in only one category. You might be able to squeeze some in, but what about, where does promoting false teaching fit? Promoting false teaching was a death penalty offense. Is that moral? Is it wrong today to promote false teaching? What about the death penalty? Is that for Israel only? Is that not ceremonial? What about false prophecy? What about uncleanness in worship? That's on the list here. In um, Leviticus 22, verse 3. If you were unclean when you came to worship, that's a ceremony, right? Or was that civil for Israel only? Which one is it? Can you come today unclean to worship on Sunday and it doesn't matter? Why do we say that's not a, that is a moral law. When you come... 1 Timothy 2 says explicitly, verse 8, let men lift up 
holy hands before the Lord. That is a moral law. Leviticus 22, verse 3, do not come unclean in your worship. Why don't you say Leviticus 22, 3 is a moral law for all time, according to 1 Timothy 2, verse 8? Why don't you say it's civil only for Israel because it had the death penalty? Why don't you say it's ceremonial? It had to do with their worship. I would challenge you to go to the book of Leviticus chapter 19. There are many laws in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 19, one of the laws is love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the laws is do not sew two different kinds of fabric together. Where does that fit? Don't sew two different fabric together. Is that moral or is that civil or is that ceremonial? I am not in any way mocking or deriding the Bible and God's holy, wonderful, perfect, just law. I am looking at these categories and saying, do they fit? Just go to the law and ask yourself, let's just see if this fits. It sounds so good. I remember hearing this when I was in college at a dispensational Baptist college, breaking the law into moral and civil and ceremonial. And I remember when the pastor told me that thinking, this is brilliant. The problem was we didn't actually go through the law and try to group them. Go to Leviticus 19 where almost every verse in that chapter is a new law. And just go, go right down the side and write M for moral, C-I for civil, or C-E for ceremonial. And see if you can finish the chapter. You can't. You're going to be marking multiple codes for se- almost every one of those laws. Go to chapter 20 in Leviticus. You'll see it again. Go to Leviticus 21, 22, and 23. Those three chapters are called the case laws because they follow after the Ten Commandments. In Leviticus 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Then in Leviticus 21, 22, and 23, it's like the Sermon on the Mount for the Old Testament. But we really need to take chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and then chapters 21, 22, and 23. So those four chapters go together, and that whole thing will be called the Sermon on the Mount for the Mosaic Law. Moses' Sermon on the Mount. Moses has a Sermon on the Mount, and then our Lord has a Sermon on the Mount. You compare those two sermons sometimes and see if you don't find more difference or more similarity. But go through the Sermon on the Mount from Moses And see if you can categorize them as moral or civil or ceremonial. They do not classify easily. Paying the temple tax, civil or ceremonial. Or moral. Should we pay the tax today? Men want to use that to preach on tithing. I'm not against that. I'm just asking, where does it go? This categorization does not actually work with the law. And traditionally, covenant theologians have followed this classification. Interestingly, in John Calvin's Institutes, pardon me, in John Calvin's Institutes, in Book 4, Chapter 20, Section 14, he deals with these three. And what's interesting in that section is he says, We won't go into any treatment of these three categories because this is not the place. But I will say that people who don't believe we should use the Old Testament law for our government today are stupid and false. Those are the two words he uses. And then he moves on to the next section. And he says, the law should be moral and civil and ceremonial. I thought, very interesting. 
You openly admit this is complicated and difficult and I can't deal with it because it's too complicated here. But let me put it in any way and say, those who have real questions about this, they're stupid and false. I'm not trying to always attack John Calvin. In the majority of the book, I'm sure I agree with him. Much of what I've read from the Institutes, I've not read the entire uh, Institutes, but much of what I've read, I've agreed with. It's been full of spiritual life and warmth. But when I look on his statements about the law, it's confused and inaccurate. Do the death penalties fit clearly into these traditional categories? They don't. And that is why theonomists have divided the law into two categories. Theonomists have done this. Hey, get rid of civil. Let's just do it that way. Let's say there's two groups. Let's call them this. We'll call it the laws that go on and the laws that are fulfilled. So when Greg Bonson writes in Theonomy and Christian Ethics, I've referenced Bonson before, especially in our lecture on theonomy. When Greg Bonson goes on about theonomy and Christian ethics, he says, really, all of the laws are still abiding. Even the? Because we are obeying the ceremonial laws every time we believe in Jesus, every time we worship Jesus. We're obeying the laws to offer sacrifices. We're obeying the laws to wash our hands at the labor. We're obeying the laws to bring the temple tax. We're obeying the laws to have the the priest dip his thumb in blood and dip his right toe in blood and his right ear in blood. Every time we worship Christ in a New Testament church, Greg Bonson says, we're obeying the So Bonson wants to say all of the laws are abiding, but it's kind of a trick because he doesn't physically offer cows or sheep. So Bonson, Bonson is such a consistent covenantalist that he even pretends to say there's really no difference. We, we still do it all. We obey all of the laws. We don't offer sacrifices, but let's stop talking about don'ts and let's talk about, talk about do. Every time we take the Lord's table, are we not remembering the sacrifice? That's a kind of offering up of the sacrifice. Watch it. That might be Catholic. So the theonomists are going to say there's two categories. Laws that we don't keep physically, but we do keep spiritually. And laws that we keep physically and spiritually. And I'm arguing that the covenantalists, whoever follows the covenant of grace, needs to hold to both of those. First of all, I need to throw out the three categories because civil just cannot be defended. And secondly, once you've thrown out the three categories, realize there's two categories. And of those two categories, if you're going to hold to the single overarching covenant of grace, you need to really hold to both of these as the theonomist holds. I don't see how you can do otherwise. But in no way do we want to disparage or dishonor the law. Look down there at section number three, bottom of page 16. The holiness, justice, and goodness of the law. The law is good. Paul says, if a man uses it correctly or lawfully, no Christian should mock the Old Testament laws. That is a dishonorable way for any Christian to act. The law was given for very good reasons. The country that had the law would be very happy, Proverbs 29, 18 says, if they had that law. If you want to be happy, keep the law. 
In fact, look at the reference that's there in the text. Deuteronomy 6.24. Therefore, the Lord our God commanded us all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. Deuteronomy 6.24. Why did he give the law? Did you hear it when I just quoted it there? For our own good. These laws, the moral civil ceremony, the moral ceremonial, or you can look at it as all one big collection. These laws were given to us for a very good reason. They are to help us. They don't hurt us. They're a unique blessing. Look over page 17. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 7, God tells Moses, all the nations of the earth are supposed to come and look down at Israel and say, what nation is there? who has a, a set of laws like this, which such, with such wise and perfect laws. You see, all the nations of the world were supposed to look at Israel and say, these laws were amazing. The Torah was irrefutable proof that there was one God and that he had chosen Israel. How were these laws perfectly fit for Israel? Let me give you two ways that these laws were perfect for Israel. Number one, the nation could not survive with its own revealed monotheism without strict fences. If you don't have high walls guarding monotheism, you might lose it because a nation could be destroyed by an army or a nation could be destroyed by what? Hundreds of years of cultural slide. The nations that are all around them could bring in their own gods. They could have syncretism. The the nations that were all around could say, come, worship our gods, serve our gods, follow us in our ways. Monotheism was virtually unknown to the world 3,500 years ago. Where were there any nations who said there's one God and only one? And where is, the, where is there in history the idea that God would speak and write out an entire system for life and liberty and culture and religion? This was entirely novel. Israel was chosen to bring the Messiah. And these laws were marking her so that she would not be diluted or polluted. Because over the centuries... She was going to have to be pure. And all the other nations were going to watch her and see what happened with her. These laws were uniquely given to Israel to protect her from cultural dilution. You see, multiculturalism is a terrible lie of Satan. Multiculturalism says all cultures are equally good, true, and beautiful. But God's revelation, his Torah, his law says, no, all of your cultures are bad. All of your cultures are evil. But there's one culture that's superior. It's the culture that I reveal. And that's the truth even down to this day. Multiculturalism comes under attack 
they will say that any country that has been influenced by Christianity is racist. They will say we need to respect the cultures of places where they have 100 million or 300 million gods. Cultures that were influenced by Hinduism. Cultures that were influenced by Catholicism, which is false religion. Cultures that were influenced by syncretism, a blending of Christianity and false religion. Or cultures influenced by Islam or African traditional religion or animism or atheism. And the truth is this. Cultures that were influenced by Christianity are better to the degree that Christianity was influential. Cultures that were influenced by the Bible, and it doesn't matter the color of the skin or the time period. If you have the Bible, you'll be better. And that's what God is saying in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 7. Reason number two, we're answering the question, how were these laws perfect for Israel? Answer number one, these laws protected Israel because they alone were given monotheism and the law of God. God's revelation was given to this place. In um, Romans chapter 9, Paul begins a section where he says, has God cast away the Jews? Is there any value in the Jews? And he says, oh, there's great value in the Jews. To them were given, and he lists a string of blessings, the law and the prophets and the covenants and the promises. This was given, and that was a massive gift, an unusual blessing. It exalted the Jews. Not that they were good on their own, but that they had the revelation. Oh, these laws were very good when they were given to Israel. And number two, only these laws and their penalties could prepare the mind and the heart for Christ. Because the cross is horrifying. It is the father setting himself against the son. It is the apparent and temporary victory of evil over good. It is holiness and humility going down and being trampled on. But for those who know the end of the story, it is victory complete. And only the Old Testament law prepares our mind as it ought to be prepared. We will not realize how valuable the cross was if we don't have death penalties to tell us how valuable life is. The, the law that says do not murder, and if you murder, you will be murdered, tells us at the very least what's happening at the cross is a massive injustice. And when the law says do not worship any gods but Jehovah, it tells you how bad it was that the son of Jehovah was killed. And when you realize that Jehovah himself was dishonored and mocked and stripped naked, it lets you know what kind of punishment was guilty to anyone involved in that, including by imputation, myself or yourself and all the nations of the world. We would not feel or know how bad it is if we did not have these laws, which is one more reason why we need to be reading these laws constantly, even today in the New Testament church, because these laws, though they are not the laws for the Christian church or government today, they are the laws that will teach us how to feel and think about the cross of Christ. They lead us to Christ.
generations of living with these laws in the background of our mind would put the father's actions and the son's humility inside the perfect frame. In fact, I think we can say there is no other way to correctly see the father's and the son's actions apart from this. Well, then what would that do if we consistently followed unity across the Old Testament and the New Testament? If there is one people of God, if unity controls the revelation of God, if the church is substantially and essentially the same in both time periods, if the law of Moses is the same as the law of Christ, if, 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 then the church should use and promote all these laws. The law of Christ is a phrase that is found two times in the New Testament, both by the Apostle Paul. Galatians 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and in that way fulfill the law of Christ. And secondly, 1 Corinthians 9 16 uses the phrase as well. James 2 verse 8, the brother of our Lord says, if you fulfill the royal law, but the word royal there is an adjective that comes from the word king. King, kingdom, royal, it's all the same root. The law of the king, the Nazbi says in the margin, it's exactly right. An adjective. Does yours have that in the margin? James 2, verse 8. James 2, 8. It says, if you fulfill the royal law, if you fulfill the law of the king, exactly. What is the law of the king? It's distinct from the law of Moses. But if you think it's the same as the law of Moses, then you must obey and promote all the laws. What reason could consistently be given for sidestepping the penalties while holding to the law of Moses as binding on the New Testament believer? If you say, well, the moral laws are binding, then why do you sidestep the penalties? Those are part of the moral laws. Some will try to argue that the law of Moses has these three categories, of which two of them have passed away, the civil and the ceremonial. But what difference is there between Israel and the church if they are essentially the same? Follow that logic. Why would two groups which have no distinction in essence, have a distinction in politics. Now listen to that. If there's no distinction in their essence, that is, Israel from the Old Testament and the church of the? New Testament. If there's no distinction in their essence, why is there a distinction in their politics? If there's no distinction in their substance, why is there a distinction in their government? If they have political distinction, that sounds to me like an essential difference. Are politics not substantial? The Old Testament and the New Testament have the same substance of revelation. Is society not essential to the church? The covenant of grace holds the same essence for the older society as well as for the newer one. So then what would happen if Deuteronomy 13 or Deuteronomy 17 were the laws for today? Deuteronomy 13, three scenarios. In each case, if someone teaches false doctrine, if someone promotes a false religion, that person must be put to death, even if it's a family member or a wife or a husband. Deuteronomy 17, if anyone not promotes a false religion, if anyone adheres to a false religion. So now you have any false teacher 
or any believer in a false god. On what authority do you say, oh, that's not a moral law? Sounds moral to me. What could be more moral than that? There is one God. Is that not the first commandment that our Lord said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If that's not moral, then what is moral? What is morality if that's not morality? If the covenants are the same, when our Lord Jesus says, love the Lord Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, this is the first commandment. This is the greatest one on which hang all the law and the prophets. If we are to follow all those laws, then why would we not follow Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, which just tell us what the penalties are if you break that law? These passages would require a king to exclude all other religions from his society with the sword. Is that not a consistent application of the covenant of grace? If you hold to all those laws, if you hold to that covenant, then you just be... You keep going consistently. They must use the law of God, these judges, these kings, these priests. They must exclude all other religions. I'm not mocking that at all. I'm telling you what the consistent position is. If you say that essence and this essence are the same essence, that substance and this substance are the same substance, or the majority position on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the majority position on Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is this. Jesus was taking the Moses Sermon on the Mount and he was just explaining what it really meant. People were very confused about what it meant. So Jesus came and said, let me tell you what it means. If someone hits you on the face, you turn the other cheek. If someone attacks you, you pray for him. That's what the Sermon on the Mount says. And the majority view is, He was simply explaining Exodus 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 that says, for example, if a man murders, he must be put to death. If a man assaults his parents, the parents are not to turn the cheek. They're to take him out and put him to death. If a man curses his parents, according to Exodus 21, Moses' Sermon on the Mount, Exodus 21 says if a man curses his parents, they're supposed to get put to death. But Jesus says if someone curses you, Blessed are you for my sake. Because that's what they did to the prophets before you. Which is it? Well, the majority view is that when Jesus was talking, he was simply interpreting Moses. If that's the same essence, all right, then I just want you to be consistent. I want you to take Jesus' words and you say, Jesus was just following Moses. Jesus was simply Moses 2.0. Moses was first edition Moses. Jesus is an extra edition of Moses. Jesus was just a Bible teacher clarifying what Moses had always said. But we were just so confused, we never really understood what Moses was saying. If Jesus was merely clarifying what Moses was saying, then go right through to it. You just follow all those laws. And when a young man is disrespectful to his parents, you need to get someone in office, in the presidency, in the parliament, who's going to issue a law and say, 
Please call us when your son is disrespectful. Please call us if he refuses to get a job. You tell him, you've got to get a job. You're 23 now. I'm busy playing video games. Call us and the police will come. We will put him on trial. And if you've got some records and if we can go and look on his internet history and see he's been playing 30 hours a week of video games, we will put him to death. I'm not mocking that law. I'm telling you what consistency is if it's the same essence and the same substance. In fact, in fact, let's just go a step farther and say, if that's the way things are, then you be, you be honest with your evangelism. Final section, page 18, political evangelism. You be honest with your evangelism. When we evangelize, we are as open and honest with sinners as we can be. If you're evangelizing someone and you can tell they have three wives. Maybe not in the first Bible study. Maybe not in the second Bible study. But before you talk to them about being baptized, would you talk to them about polygamy? Absolutely you would. You, you would say it with love and gentleness and tenderness and care, but you would say, Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. How many wives does Christ have? One. How are we supposed to love our wives the way Christ did? What is, what is the picture of marriage? It's Christ in the church. And how many wives does he have? He has one. Do you see that if you want to follow him who died for you, You're going to have to repent of the sin of polygamy. You can say it lovingly and gently and graciously. You can talk about the consequences, but don't you realize that before he ever comes to Christ, he's going to have to count the cost of polygamy? Is that true? Yes. Absolutely. Now, if you knew to be a Christian means we are not only going to oppose adultery, We're not only going to oppose um, homosexuality. We are going to demand that those people be put to death. We're not only going to oppose Islam. We are going to tell the Muslims when we're evangelizing them, just what you know, come to Jesus. Believe in him because he died for sinners. But the thing you're doing is so evil that not only does God hate it and he will damn your soul, but I'm just telling you that as soon as we can get enough people and outnumber you, we are going to put in office people who will make it not only a sin, but a crime in this country. And furthermore, it will not only be a crime, it will be a capital crime. It's not happening today, but it is our goal and we're moving that direction. Why would you not tell someone? You see, I will gladly, when I'm evangelizing, tell an African who is still afraid of witchcraft, I love you and God loves you, but your fear of evil spirits is such an evil sin. When you should be fearing the creator, you are fearing the creature and God will damn you for that. But if you repent of it, he'll save you. I'll tell them that. And I'll go further and say, 
And we need to respect and obey our government. But honestly, the government is wicked. And it's going to be wicked until our Lord Jesus comes. We can try to vote and pray, but the government's wicked until our Lord Jesus comes back and changes it. I'm willing to be that offensive. But are we willing to tell people to count the cost in this regard? I just want you to know that it is our goal that we would plant a Baptist church here in your village. And if you don't listen to us, and if you don't listen to the gospel of Jesus, not only will you die and go to hell, but as soon as God gives us grace and we're able to lead enough people to Christ, we're going to put chiefs in this village who will do their best to make it a crime not to attend our church. You see, that is what historically happened with Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland, with Luther in Germany, with the Catholic Church before the Reformers in Italy and in Spain and in England, with the Anglican Church in England. This is historically what has happened when people have tried to say, let's quiet down about the differences and let's raise our voice about the similarities. The more you talk about similarity, the more you are bound by consistency to promote a government-sponsored and government-protected religion whose sins are also society's crimes. Any questions?